Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1, we read now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go. And tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into the Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went out to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Christianity begins where religion ends, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, there was a treacherous body of water at the very southern tip of Africa, and they called it the Cape of Storms. It was a place where many ships met their doom. But after the intrepid navigator Vasco de Gama succeeded in rounding it safely, its name was forever changed to the Cape of Good Hope. Prior to the resurrection of Jesus, Calvary has been called the place of the skull. In the ancient world, it was the Cape of Storms. But now we've been born again, the Bible says, to a living hope. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And there's a reason why he calls our hope a living hope. It's because Jesus has been raised from the dead. The death of Jesus speaks to us about the love of God. And the resurrection of Jesus speaks to us about the power of God. Now in Matthew's gospel, we see women arrive at the tomb in verse 1. An angel beside the tomb in verses 2 through 4. Matthew records the angel's radiance. He has a face like lightning, clothes that are brilliant, bright as the snow, and then it's followed by reassurance in verses 5 and 6. The angel announces the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The announcement prompts a request in verse 6. Come and see the place where the Lord lay. 
Verse 7, go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. People gather on this morning. And some people identify themselves as disciples. Some people identify themselves as believers. But some people are still skeptics, agnostics. These are people who wonder whether or not the story could still be possibly true. There are people who have grown up with Jesus and they have learned about his miraculous birth and his amazing life and his incredible teachings. They understand the story about his death and they've even heard the story about his resurrection. But they don't really believe it. A.W. Tozier once wrote, every man will have to decide for himself whether or not he can afford the terrible luxury of unbelief. And each one of us will also have to ask that same question. Can an empty tomb fill a heart with hope? What we're going to do this morning is we're going to take the angel up on his offer. And we are going to see the place where Jesus lay. It's an empty tomb just outside the ancient walls of the eternal city, Jerusalem. Let's look at verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. The gospel writers all stand united in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead after the Jewish Sabbath. Remember the Jews reckoned time from sundown to sundown. In that ancient culture and ancient language, they don't have a name for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. They call it day one, day two, day three, day four. And even though there's great controversy over the day of his death, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John stand united that a real Jesus comes back to life on Sunday morning. A group of faithful women had followed Jesus in life. And they came to anoint his body in death with spices, according to Mark chapter 16, verse 1, and Luke 24, verse 1. Mary Magdalene was a follower who had, according to Luke's gospel in chapter 8, verse 2, she was wonderfully and marvelously healed and delivered. The other Mary is identified in Matthew chapter 27, verse 56, as Mary the mother of James and Joseph, as one translation has it, or Joseph, it's repeated in chapter 27, verse 61, and Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. The women came not expecting life. They came to see the tomb. It says in verse 1. You know, a lot of people go to church and they 
expect something. For some, their expectation is rooted and grounded in death. But some come expecting life. And look at verse 2, the angel's invitation. It says, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came back and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Matthew draws our attention to three things concerning this celestial supernatural visitor. His radiance in verses 2 through 4. The reassurance that he provides in verses 5 and 6. And then his strange request in verses 7 and 8. There is something supernatural. The sky breaks open. The angel descends. He rolls back what appears to be a two and a half ton stone and he perches right on top of it. And in verse four, it says, and the guards, these are the Roman guards, perhaps the temple guards as well, shook for fear of him. And then they became like dead men. I want you to see the irony of the verse. The man who's supposed to be dead in the tomb is alive. The men on the outside who are supposed to be alive are pretending like they're dead. Angelic appearances in the Bible, in the New Testament, rarely, rarely prompts comfort. Almost invariably, it produces terror. Because you've got to understand something. In the ancient world, when an angel showed up, it meant that this wasn't going to be a good day. It meant that you were probably going to experience your last day. You know, there was a recent movie that has just came out and that was portrayed on TV. It was called The Dove Keepers. And it's the story of the Jewish revolt, which sets historically from 66 AD to 70 AD, when the Jews mount a rebellion against the Roman Empire. And as interesting as the story is, and as well done as the story is, I take exception to one thing that the story said and portrayed. It portrayed the Roman soldiers in the story as being cowards. And nothing could be further from the truth. Roman soldiers were highly disciplined. Roman soldiers were highly trained. Roman soldiers were equipped and dedicated to the proposition of defense and death. And so when it says in verse 4 that they shook for fear, these are men who had faced unbelievable enemies. But even they can't fight against a supernatural being. They are no match for this supernatural being. And in verse 5 it says, But the angel answers and says to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. The angel ignores the terrified guards and speaks to the women. 
and offers assurance. Don't be afraid. But I want to draw your attention to something that you may not have seen before or that you may not have considered before. Do you think that this supernatural being perched on the stone that has just been rolled away is speaking in a quiet voice or do you think that he's speaking with a little bit of authority? I'm going to suggest to you it's with authority. I'm also going to suggest to you that even though the Roman guards are feigning death, they hear every word that is being spoken. The angel offers the reassurance, don't be afraid. Both Luke chapter 24 verse 4 and John chapter 20 verse 12 tells us that there were two angels present. But Matthew's gospel is the gospel that gives us the insight that only one angel speaks. And he reveals the identity of the man being sought. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and the women who come, they are expecting to find a dead Jesus, the Jesus who was crucified. These women certainly would have been aware that Jesus had been seized in the night. He had been presented before Caiaphas and the high priest. He had gone before Herod and he had gone before Pilate in the mockery of trials. He had been humiliated and he had been incarcerated and he had been tortured. And they watched him as he was crucified. They watched as he was suspended between heaven and earth. They watched as the Roman soldier carefully placed the spear just under his rib cage where it pierced the percardium sac and the outward vestiture of his heart burst and blood and water came forth. They know that he was crucified. And the angel says in verse 6, He is not here, for he is risen. Note what it says, as he said. You know, the Bible invites us to investigate and authenticate whenever an angel says anything. Paul will later say, even though we are an angel from heaven, if they say anything other than what we've said to you, let him be accursed. The angel doesn't just simply make up a story. The angel repeats what Jesus has repeatedly said. Throughout the New Testament, we'll have Jesus saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me. They're going to kill me. And I'm going to come back to life. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me. They're going to kill me. And I'm going to come back to life. They understood that, but they didn't believe that. And when the angel says, come, see the place where the Lord lay. The word come is an interesting word in the original language. In this particular context, the word means come and make an investigation. The word carries with it the sense, come once for all, see and understand. What we're invited to do is to conduct an investigation and ask and answer the question. What is it that we see and how are we to understand what it is that we see? 
When the angel says he is not here, our new age friends would have us to believe, well, the reason why he's not here is because, well, dude, he's everywhere. (laughs) When he came back to life, he invades our consciousness and our sensibilities. But that's not the case at all. When the New Testament speaks of a resurrection, it is to forever answer the issue of whether or not reincarnation is true. I admit there was a time in my life where I actually believed in reincarnation. I toyed with the idea. It made sense to me that maybe we lived over and over and over and over again until we got it right. But the Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible says it's appointed once for a human being to die, and then the judgment comes. The Bible doesn't say we're born again and again and again. The Bible says that when a person dies, that each and every person will one day come back to life. You see, the answer in the Bible to the issue of reincarnation is resurrection. The friends of Jesus... And the foes of Jesus had one thing in common. That Sunday morning, both of them had the evidence before them of an empty tomb. His enemies believed it was empty and his friends believed that it was empty. If Jesus is not bodily and literally risen from the dead, Christianity is a fraud and Jesus is found to be a liar and the gospels are found to be fraudulent documents. Paul was right when he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. And if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die in verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, Christianity is no better than any of of the pagan religions or the ancient superstitions that have survived till this day. So how then do we explain this empty tomb? You see, there's only a few alternatives that are available to us. The first that has been suggested is, did this man really die? You know, there was a leadership magazine and there was a person who wrote for leadership magazine. And he was sort of the dear Abby of that. And someone wrote him a letter and said, dear Eutychus, my pastor doesn't believe that Jesus really rose from the dead, that he just died or that he just pretended to die and that he was revived in the ancient tomb. What do you think? And Eutychus wrote back and he said, beat your pastor with a cat of nine tails. Watch as his flesh is opened. Take a sharp object, place it under his ribcage and pierce his heart. Wrap him in linen cloth with 75 pounds of spices. Place him in an airtight tomb for three days. After three days, open the tomb and ask him the question again. The Bible records a series of trials, a series of beatings. 
the cruel practice called scourging, where a man was tied to a marble pillar and beaten with what was called a flagellum. This was a leather whip with metal or glass or bone that was knotted to the thongs, and the whipping would leave deep lacerations, shredding the flesh, sometimes exposing the muscle and sinew. The whipping would leave deep lacerations and would substantially weaken even the strongest man and limit the amount of time necessary to die on a cross. The testimony of every single gospel is that Jesus did, in fact, experience that cruel event, that he had nails placed in his hands and feet. And the evidence seems to support his placement on a cross at about nine o'clock in the morning. He remains on that cross through noon to about three o'clock in the afternoon. And when the Roman soldiers went to break the legs of the thieves who appeared on either side, they came to Jesus, ready and prepared to break his legs. Roman soldiers were familiar with death. This would have not been shocking, unusual, and by the way, if you are a person acquainted with death, you begin to see the telltale signs of death. But in order to make sure, the Roman soldier had a spear and he had a pilum at the end. It was a piece of iron that was in the shape of a leaf and it was sharpened on both sides and he would have placed carefully that pilum, that spearhead under the rib cage of Jesus. He would have slipped it into the picardium sac and penetrated the heart and then water and blood, it says, gushed out. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus remove the body from the cross, wrap it in linen cloth with what most experts believe is about 75 pounds of spice. They place his body in a borrowed tomb just before sunset and the body lay in that tomb to just before sunset on Sunday morning. Did he really swoon? Was his death an elaborate hoax? Did he somehow manage to survive the cruel chain of events only to recover and reappear for a series of 40 days, including an upper room experience inviting Thomas to handle his feet and his side, appear by the Sea of Galilee for fish tacos? Which is biblical proof that each and every one of us have now permission to eat fish tacos at Rubio's every single Sunday. <laughs> he faked his ascension into heaven. He completely disappears and remains in some kind of self-imposed witness protection program. The tomb was empty because he never died. That's fairly implausible. 
Even the skeptic and critic, John Dominic Crossan, who is not a believer by any stretch of the imagination, who doesn't believe that this real Jesus really came back to life, but he does believe that this real Jesus really died. He writes, quote, Jesus' death, he was a former Irish Catholic priest. He, he wrote, Jesus' death by execution under Pontius Pilate is as sure as anything historical can ever be. For if no follower of Jesus had ever written anything for a hundred years after his crucifixion, we would still know about him from two authors, not among his supporters. Their names are Flavius Josephus and Cornelius Tacitus, unquote. All the New Testament writers believed that Jesus really died. The Roman historians believed and were convinced that Jesus really died. The tomb was empty because the body was stolen? Is that a plausible explanation? Because guess what? Either he didn't really die or his body was taken. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. Who are the two broad categories of people that might have stolen his body? Those two groups fall into two neat categories. His friends... Or his enemies. The enemies of Jesus concede that the body is gone. The enemies of Jesus concede that they believe that the followers of Jesus somehow managed to get past the guard and take the body. How do we know that? Beginning in verse 11, you might want to read with me. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city. Pause for just a moment. Remember what we've already learned. These are the guard that have pretended that they were dead because they see a supernatural event. An angel come from heaven, remove the stone, and then they are shaking. They get their wits about them. And it says, now, while they were going, some of the guard came into the city and reported, look for yourself, they reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. What's happened? What did they report? Pause for just a moment. Remember what I said to you earlier? I'm going to suggest to you that the soldiers know exactly what's happened. They saw a supernatural being come from outer space, remove the stone, sit on that stone, and then report that Jesus had come back to life. Here's their report. An angel showed up. We soiled ourselves. <laughs> we pretended like we were dead. The angel removed the stone and sat on it. Some ladies showed up. The angel told the ladies that Jesus has risen from the dead. We couldn't help but overhear it. He had a fairly loud voice. He invited the ladies to look into the tomb and see that Jesus was gone. The religious leaders, look what it says in verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept, unquote. Can you imagine the Roman guard? You know, I'm not a homicide detective or anything like that. 
But imagine you're Columbo just for a moment. And Peter Falk goes, okay, now let me make sure I got this straight. (laughs) All the guards fell asleep. And while they're asleep, they dream that the disciples come and take the body. I've never known a person who was asleep to be a reliable source of information. Look, if we're going to go with this story instead of the real story, don't you think we should get our story straight? And if we say that we fell asleep, no offense, but the penalty for falling asleep on the job as a Roman guard is death. The religious leaders say, When they assembled together with the elders, they consulted together. They gave him a large sum of money saying, tell them that his disciples came at night and stole away the body while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, if it looks like you could lose your job or lose your life, we'll appease him and we will make you secure. So they took the money and they did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported to the Jews even till this day. Think about it. His friends came and stole the body. Let's just for purposes of discussion say that they didn't come and while they were asleep. But in fact, they all of a sudden became like Benjamin Netanyahu, Israeli commanders. And they're going to storm this tomb. And they're going to overcome the Roman guard. And they're going to do what would have seemed impossible just a few hours earlier. By the way, in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and John, all of the disciples appear cowardly, terrified, fearful. Does it make sense that they overcame the Roman guards, that they removed the stone that they spirited the body away, that they fabricated the appearances to the women. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, some 500 people in a series of post-resurrection appearances, then they haul the body upstairs, completely fooling everyone. They haul the body to the Galilee where they stuff fish tacos down his dead throat. And then they orchestrate a fake ascension and then 10 of the 11 die the most brutal death imaginable in order to maintain the lie. He didn't really die. Plausible or implausible? Implausible. His friends stole the body. Plausible or implausible? I'm going to suggest to you that it's implausible. Well, if his friends didn't steal the body, then that only leaves his enemies to steal the body. Philosopher Stephen Davis writes, early Christian proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem would have been psychologically and apologetically impossible without safe evidence of an empty tomb 
In other words, without safe and agreed upon evidence of an empty tomb, the apostles' claims would have been subject to massive falsification by the simple presentation of the body. And when they start talking all of this nonsense about a person coming back to life, all the enemies of Jesus would have had to have done is just simply produce the dead corpse. And Christianity would have went away forever. Did he really die? All the evidence seems to be that he really did. Did the disciples steal the body? All the evidence seems to indicate that that's not possible. Did the enemies of Jesus steal the body? That doesn't seem plausible. Another compelling reason to believe the gospel narrative is that when the women are the first witnesses of the empty tomb, women in Jewish culture and society weren't seen as citizens. They weren't even seen as capable legal witnesses. If you're going to fabricate and falsify a resurrection story, you're certainly going to cast the characters with more credibility. The Jewish writers cite an empty tomb. The gospel writers cite an empty tomb. The writer Josephus and even the Jewish rabbis of that period went on to later try to explain the disappearance of the body and the empty tomb. Common sense tells us the reason why the gospel writers record the women as the first witness accounts is because it's true. Dr. Paul Meyer one of the leading historians of our day, rightly observes, quote, if the resurrection accounts had been manufactured, women would never have been included in the story, at least not as the first witnesses, unquote. What other option is left to us of how this tomb could possibly be empty? The angel gives the real reason. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going before you into the Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. The angel's message is a message of reassurance. And then request. And what is the angel's request? Come and see. Go and tell. It's not good enough for you to just come and conduct the investigation. You now have to participate in the proclamation. And look what else it says in verse 7. Go quickly. Why do you suppose the angel says go quickly? I'm going to suggest to you it's because there's no time to waste. This is not news that you can keep to yourself. There is no time to waste. Why? Because hearts are empty. Hearts are cold. Hearts have been abandoned. There are people with their hearts empty, hurt, broken, fearful. And so the angel says, guess what? You have to rearrange your priorities. Our precious Lord is risen from the dead. There's no time to waste. There's no time to waste. There's no delay possible. 
And look at the Savior's declaration in verse 8. Look what it says. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear. The word is phobos. Same word that's used earlier to describe the Roman soldiers. They went out with fear and great joy. By the way, that word phobos has made its way into our own vocabulary in in the form of the word phobia. When we use the term phobia, we think of an irrational fear. But really, there's two kinds of fear. There is irrational fear, and then there is a rational kind of a fear. The kind of fear that when you get ready to cross the street and you see the traffic going, and you look both ways. It's not unreasonable for you to go, hey, you know, I should probably check the traffic before I cross the road. Or for rattlesnakes right in front of you, do you go, that's not real. Or do you walk in the other direction because you have a rational respect for things that can hurt you? Are the women still confused over what's just happened? Are they uncertain about what has just transpired? Whatever's happening, their fear is coupled with joy. And they run in obedience to the angel's command to bring his disciples' word, their idea, we have the good news. Let's spread it quickly. We have good news. Let's share it immediately. And in verse 9 it says, And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. I want you to note the order. On their way to meet the disciples... The women meet Jesus at the beginning of verse 9. They hear Jesus in the middle of verse 9. They worship Jesus at the end of verse 9. And they obey Jesus in verse 10. And does it come as a shock to you that the first word out of the risen Savior's mouth is rejoice. This is a word that's pregnant with grace and joy. Because resurrection answers crucifixion. Because life answers death. By the way, later Jesus will greet the disciples in the upper room and he'll say peace in John chapter 20 verse 19. Paul will write later joy and peace in believing in Romans 15, 13. Believing in the risen Savior. Believing in the everlasting Jesus. Believing his presence and his power and his perpetuity. If I were Jesus, I wouldn't have just simply appeared to the believing multitude. What I would have done is I would have knocked on Tiberius' door and I would have said, Emperor of Rome, it's me. Or at least go to Pilate and go, remember me? Go to Herod, remember me? But Jesus doesn't, in his post-resurrection appearances, appear to any other group of people than just simply the people that he is invested in. The women, the disciples. The possible exceptions are his own half-brother James, who he appears to, and it would appear that because of that incident that James becomes a believer in the resurrected Jesus. The text says, so they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. They cling to him the way any loved one would cling to a person who was dead and has come back to life. 
But the worship here isn't just simple reverence. It isn't courtesy. This isn't homage paid to some earthly dignitary. This is real worship in the truest sense of the word. This is the kind of worship that's reserved only for God. With worship comes the realization to worship God is to realize the purpose why God has made you. And the moment that you truly worship God, you begin to understand something. That you were created to love him and be loved by him. Jesus doesn't rebuke the women for worshiping him. It begins with worship. It continues with service. And worship isn't simply a part of the Christian life. Worship is the Christian life. William Temple wrote rightly, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination in the beauty of God, to open our heart to the love of God, and then devote our will to the purposes of God. That is real worship. Then Jesus said to them in verse 10, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to the Galilee, and there they will see me. When Jesus says, do not be afraid, he's reminding us of something that each and every one of us should never, ever, ever forget. And that is that the resurrection... This is a time for joy. This isn't a time for fear. This is a time for joy. The women have seen the empty tomb, but now they've seen the risen Savior. The angel had said, come see the place where he lay. The angel had said, go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen. The women ran to go give the disciples word. The women run to tell the disciples and they meet the resurrected Jesus. And then Jesus says, go and tell my brethren. By the way, what happened? Did the women ever make it? Did they ever tell the disciples what they saw and what they heard and what they experienced? In Luke's gospel, we have our answer. In Luke chapter 24, verses 9, 10, and 11, we read, Then they, that's the women, returned from the tomb... And told all these things to the eleven. Why the not why the twelve? Because remember, one has already gone out and hung himself. And to all the rest, that means there were more people there. In Luke 24:10, it says, It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And you would think that the answer is going to be, wow, Jesus was right all along. We believe you. Is that what happened? According to Luke chapter 24, verse 11, this is what it says. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. You see, this is why I'm never angry and I'm never upset when anyone comes into this sanctuary and hears me preach and they go, I don't believe you. And I can smile and I can say, 
more credible witnesses, closer to the original story, have made a better presentation, and they weren't believed either. I'm not even a tiny bit offended. Their words seemed like idle tales, and they didn't believe them. The first resurrection was preached by an angel to women and then from women to the apostles and they rejected the message and they rejected the testimony of the empty tomb and they rejected the testimony of the angels and they rejected the testimony of the soldiers, men who watched Jesus get seized, men who knew about the arrest, the imprisonment, the mock trial, men who walked with him and talked with him and witnessed the miracles. They had access to none of the stuff that we have access to and they want to believe but they can't at least not now the story is just too unbelievable was their faith ever real I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is yes it just had not become permanent They couldn't seriously just simply walk away from everything that Jesus had done. But they won't actually believe until Jesus shows up. And for many of you, your faith has not yet become permanent but it will one day I believe that a real Jesus will really show up and he'll make himself known to you and you'll know the truth You know, I love the story about a Sunday school teacher who asked his children to come to his class with some plastic eggs on Easter Sunday. And each was supposed to put something in the egg that symbolized the true meaning of the resurrection. And the day came and the teacher took each of the children's eggs and in turn opened them, amplifying the content. One child had a tiny, tiny flower and the teacher spoke about the new life that comes with Christ. And another picture contained a crayoned picture of Christ and the teacher spoke about it. Another one had a little nail in it and he spoke of the nails that affixed the Savior's hands to the cross and another child put a pebble inside of the Easter egg and the teacher spoke of the rock that separated and enclosed the tomb And there was another child. His name was Brian. And Brian was seven and developmentally disabled. And when the teacher opened up his egg, it was empty. And the teacher was at a loss for words. He could offer no explanation. And Brian shouted, The egg is empty, just like the tomb. And the teacher said, 
course it's empty. Of course it's empty. It's empty so that you don't have to be empty. And we ask and we answer our question. Can an empty tomb fill a heart with hope? You decide. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, for the person who refuses to take the challenge of the empty tomb, they still have to come up with an answer. How do we explain that empty place? And Lord, I know that for most people, it never occurs to them that their empty heart is the most pressing explanation. Heavenly Father, in the first service, a woman asked me, why did Jesus have to die such a horrible death? Such a a terrible death. And the answer, of course, is because of the horror and the terror of sin. The horrible crucifixion of Jesus gives us an insight into just how gross and just how disgusting sin really is. And it becomes the most terrifying answer to just how deep the human problem really is. But Lord, we're so grateful for a resurrected Jesus. For a Savior who comes back to life who extends to us forgiveness and hope and joy. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not be content to just simply look into that empty place, but that we would be willing to go and tell our friends and to tell our family that a real Jesus has come back to life forever. In Jesus' name. Amen.